0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm Aisha Mills, sitting in for Jason Johnson. June is LGBTQ Pride Month, and this year, many who celebrate feel under siege. The political attacks and hostility directed at us in the queer community have millions of Americans living in fear. But author George M. Johnson says that it's more important than ever to share our joy and our stories.
1: Librarians are getting threatened. Teachers are getting threatened. It's not just some argument of ideology anymore. It really is a safety issue.
0: All Boys Aren't Blue writer George M. Johnson coming up on A Word. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm Aisha Mills, sitting in for Jason Johnson. LGBTQ pride this year comes at a difficult time for the community. Trans and non-binary people in particular have been targeted by conservative politicians in dozens of states with new laws restricting everything from drag performances to classroom discussions. One place this anti-trans campaign has been felt most keenly is in school libraries, where books by queer authors have been yanked from shelves in record numbers. And one of the top titles that's drawn fire is All Boys Aren't Blue. The memoir is a gripping coming of age story from writer George M. Johnson with frank and sometimes heartbreaking moments about growing up black and queer. The controversy, and George M. Johnson's willingness to speak about it, has put him at the center of our ongoing national discussion about race and identity and has made All Boys Aren't Blue into a bestseller. And George M. Johnson joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Thank you. You are now an Emmy-nominated writer, producer uh, for your film, All Boys Aren't Blue. And I want to first start off by congratulating you and celebrating you. Please tell us how you got here.
1: Yeah, so it was during COVID. Everybody was on lockdown. And uh, my friend Amara, who works at AIDS Healthcare Foundation, was like, We haven't been able to do anything for your book. I kind of have this idea of maybe we adapt it or do like a spoken word type of thing. So we both. Within like 15, 20 minutes, came up with like this idea. And then we called our good friend Nathan Hale Williams like immediately on three way and was like, hey, we have this idea. Do you want to direct it? And Nathan was like, oh, my God, like I just finished reading the book. And like I had prayed about like one day being able to work on something with George about this book. And so within, I guess, 24 hours, we had set up like the whole idea, written the sheet up. AIDS Healthcare Foundation sent the funding in. We called in a few favors because, you know, the budget was okay. We'll just put it that way. Um, And we did a 12-hour shoot uh, in January of 2021, which was really interesting because the insurrection happened the day before. It was just a lot going on in the world. We weren't even sure we were going to be able to do the shoot. So January 7th for 2021, we shot everything. We then ran it through the film festival circuit, which it did amazing. Uh, it won a GLAAD award. And then uh, once we got it on Amazon Prime, we were like, oh, let's take a shot at the Emmys. Why not? And lo and behold, we got an Emmy nomination.
0: Tell us uh, a little bit about the plot line of All Boys Aren't Blue.
1: Yes, All Boys Aren't Blue's plotline is primarily about my journey as a young Black queer kid. By the age of five, I knew I was different. I just didn't know what different meant. Like, I didn't have words for it, but I knew I wasn't like any other kid. And so it really just tells my journey of self-discovery, my journey of identity. Um, But even better, the fact that I grew up in a Black family that allowed me to be myself, which was... Interestingly enough, something that I thought every family allowed because I grew up with a transgender cousin and I grew up with queer and trans people at birthday parties, at cookouts with us all the time. And so I thought that's what every black family grew up with. And it wasn't until I started to get older as a young adult, see like, oh, like this is something that my family is going to be shunned for and shamed for the protection and support that we have of people like me. And so it really just tells that journey from birth until the age of 21 of what it was like to grow up and be indoctrinated in the poor education system in this country that doesn't tell us the full truth. It was my ability to to rewrite the narrative as truthful and as powerful as possible.
0: Your book is written specifically for young adults. Tell us about why you made that choice. It was interesting. At first, I was
1: thinking it was going to be an adult book. And as I was talking with my agent, he was like, well, you know, how do you feel about like young adult? I was like, I would love to write for young adults. My only concern is these topics are really heavy. And I don't know because this is my first time in publishing. I was like, how far can I go between my publisher and my editor? They both were like, I mean, at this point, it's pretty much open. It's just a little bit below adult, what you can say in adult. And they were like, you have full range to go where you want to go with this. I wanted to write for Young Adulsa because I think that's like the, the, the biggest period of my questioning of everything was the age between like 13 and 17. Like I questioned everything. I had to make these major life decisions about college. And those years are where everybody is figuring themselves out. Everybody is hitting puberty. It's just so many things to question in the world, right? You're about to start voting at 18, right? So now you're starting to have a political lens. So I felt like writing to them and giving them this text, giving them the resource that I didn't get, especially those who are LGBTQ and even more so Black and LGBTQ. I wanted them to have the roadmap that I didn't get. So that they would be better prepared uh, when they did. And I hate to say like when they step out in the real world, because they're already in the real world. And I think that's what I wanted them to know was that even at the age of 13, you have already stepped into the real world. By age 14, you may have to already start paying taxes if you have a job, even though you can't vote. So. These were the things that I wanted young adults to realize. You are in the real world by that time. You're paying taxes. You, are, uh, you have to abide by laws. You start to drive. You, like All of these things. And so that's what the book really was. It was like that roadmap to let them know like nobody can keep telling you you're about to meet the real world. Like No, you're already in the real world. And these real world things are happening to you and you're experiencing them. And I want to give you the roadmap to know how to navigate them.
0: Speaking of knowing how to navigate, you also share some of your own personal traumas in this book. You share a story about being sexually assaulted, and you also talked about your first consensual experience, sexual experience as well too, You know, the opposite of that. And I wonder, how was it for you to put so much of your personal narrative into this story? That part wasn't hard. I think the hardest part was like,
1: my family having to read about it, you know? And like my aunts and cousins and and all of them having to read about stuff that I never talked about with them um because this was the first time that I was going to tell everybody. I've always been like a tell the world type before I tell my family. It's like everybody just knows at the same time. So it's like it just makes it a lot easier for me to just tell everybody all at once. And so that was like the hardest part was like knowing that like my dad was going to read it and I was just wondering like how would he feel about it? But um everybody in my family was extremely supportive even after reading through that. And I think the toughest part is well how much of my life do I put out there? How vulnerable should I be? How transparent should I be? But I think what outweighed that was what happens if the part that I choose to keep out because I am maybe embarrassed by it or feel guilt over it or something, what happens if that part that I leave out is the part that would have helped the young adult the most. And so I think my own fears about that were outweighed by the fact that If I leave this part out and this young adult really needed that part and I find out about it, that's going to make me feel worse than if I would just put it in. And so I think every time I got to that place, it was just like reminding myself of why I'm doing this and to just keep putting it in, because that could be the part that helps somebody the most.
0: As you are writing and sharing your vulnerable story to help other young people, a dozen states have banned your book. Because of of its content, did this backlash that we're experiencing right now as an author, um, with regards to you know book bans, etc., is this surprising to you at all? And what do you think is really at the heart of all of these attacks?
1: Yeah, I would say it, it is a little bit surprising. It just seems so far away from any realm of reality, like. To ban books, especially at like this type of level, this whole notion of uh parental rights. And it's like, but. It's only the parental rights of the parents who don't want books banned. Like, where are their parental rights? It's the it's the weirdest argument. It was something that was totally unexpected. Like, I knew the book would have, like, certain challenges. I never thought it would be the second most challenged in the country. I never thought there would be multiple criminal complaints filed against the book. I never thought we would have to file a federal lawsuit. The Department of Education... Civil Rights Division warned a county in Georgia that they believe violated the First Amendment. They challenged eight books. They put seven back on the shelf, and the only one they didn't put back on the shelf was mine. And so there's all these articles now about the Department of Education Civil Rights Division ready to step in because they didn't return my book and felt that they violated procedure when they did that. So I don't think we ever thought it would be like this politicized, but we really know what's at the heart of it, right? It's like two things. One, the country's demographics are changing so fast. There is a fear that if Generation Z knows the truth about the country and knows how to have empathy and supports LGBTQ people supports black people supports basically non-white people as the boomer generation you know is passing away they used to be the largest voting block gen z is growing so fast that they're now becoming the largest voting block and they're actually voting cuz that was something that they weren't doing before and over the last two election cycles they have shown up unexpectedly when you look at the poll numbers and and now republicans are like holy crap like we didn't think that they would ever get up and vote but not only are they voting they're voting with ideologies around being pro-choice and ideologies around loving LGBTQ people, which means that when they become in power next, because they'll be the next generation that becomes senators, governors, CEOs, they're going to start to make laws that are not just centered on cis white people. And so I think that's really what's at the heart of it. And also there's like the whole damsel in distress syndrome is intersecting with purity of white children syndrome. And they're like fist bumping at the same time. So that's really what it is.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back more with All Boys Aren't Blue author, George M. Johnson, this is A Word. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at Thank you. You're listening to a word. I'm Ayesha Mill, sitting in for Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with All Boys Aren't Blue writer, George M. Johnson, about their writing, their life, and LGBTQ pride, and their Emmy nomination. George, you've said that you don't like the phrase, coming out. Why? I always felt like it gave so much
1: power to the person who wanted to know like your business. Like I, I was like, why do I have to come out? Like, I already exist. I'm already in community. It's not like when I, like when you quote unquote come out, that's all of a sudden the first time you go to a club or have a gay experience or a queer experience. So it's like people already most of the time know. And so it's like, I'm doing this as like a service to the public. Like, I don't know. Um, And so like when I'm talking with young adults who always ask about that, I always tell them to reframe it as inviting in. And so I like to say like, when when you are publicly um, talking about your identity, that you're inviting people into who you are. Uh, and I like giving that terminology and that phrasing, especially to teens, because I always say to them, you know, it's the same way, like if you invite somebody in your home and they disrespect your home, you kick them out. So when you invite somebody into who you are, your personal truth, if they disrespect your truth, you can send them packing. It's not always easy, but I think that gives you more agency when you say, I feel safe enough with you to invite you into who I really am, versus I'm coming out to you for some reason. Like That that has nothing to really do with me. (laughs) it, It just seems like it's more for the benefit of the public than for the benefit of the person. And so I think inviting people in keeps the agency within that person. And it reframes it in a way that where it's around like the the safety you've created has allowed me to open up this space to you
0: one of the things that's really special about your personal story that might be different from other black queer people is that your family has been very supportive and and continues to be you talk about how you have a black family that's allowed you to be you Talk about how that support manifested itself when you were growing up and really shaped who you are today.
1: Yeah, I mean, realistically, I was just allowed to be myself. I didn't get like shamed or shunned for being like too effeminate or um Too sassy at times. Like, I just really was allowed to just be who I was. I was allowed to kind of chart my own path, make my own decisions. My mom, she really just gave me like a lot of agency. Like, even when it came to like when I was like 17, like if I wanted to hang out a little bit more, stay out late, or like she just kind of always like opened up that space and like my aunts would do the same. And so my family's always kind of been like that way to just kind of let us just kind of be free flowing, but very supportive as we were going through like maturation stage.
0: George, what's so interesting about your story and your timing just generationally is that you have entered into a cultural scene where I would say the pathway has been really plowed around acceptance of LGBTQ plus people. Film and culture has had so much to do with that. And now as the next generation standard bearer, I would say, for books and film that permeate our culture. I wonder what impact and legacy do you hope to leave?
1: The Cicely Tyson quote is still just so profound to me when they were asking her about like her legacy. And she was just like, I did my best. I I don't know. There's something very Profound about, I did my best because to do your best, that doesn't mean that you always were your best, but you did your best. Like, if that was the best you could give that day, that was the best you could give that day. And so, for me, when I think about like whatever my legacy is, I always say, just tell the truth. When y'all start to post about me or whatever, just tell the truth. And for those who had issues with me, let them publicly say what their truth is because I want people to always know that, like, My legacy should be one about fairness and it should be one about where I'm talked about as a total person who had flaws and who made mistakes and who may have done things that that weren't seen in the best light at times. And that's okay. Because I think that's a much better legacy than everybody trying to paint me as some untouchable, you can't say nothing about them type of figure. I don't want that. And so I think that's what I really, really want for my legacy. And I guess the other thing that I've been ruminating on is like when people were making history and breaking history, I now understand how they didn't probably know it. And so like I'm oftentimes having to be told that something I did was historic. So. I don't always know it. And so I think that also has become interesting to process because people are like, well, you do know like that type of federal lawsuit you just filed is historic, or like your Emmy nomination is kind of historic, or like your you know, your book being the most Banned book by a black person, historic. So I don't think about it like that, but I think about my fight and everything I'm doing to protect education and things. And so I do hope that people do fully understand that like, you know, my legacy will be built in one where I really, really cared about our community and the betterment of it and not allowing any anybody to like deny our stories anymore.
0: We're gonna take a short break when we come back, more with writer and activist George M. Johnson. This is a word. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word. I'm Aisha Mill sitting in for Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about pride in the black LGBTQ community with writer George Johnson. George, before the break, we were talking about the fact that your book is one of the most banned books in America. Can you give us a little context about that?
1: The way that it works, the American Library Association tracks every challenge that happens to a book uh, across the country. And so last year was the most challenges since they started recording book challenges, I believe 20 years ago, that have ever happened. Maya Gender Genderqueer was challenged, I believe, 159 times. My book was challenged 86 or 89 times, which means basically 89 different counties across the country have challenged the book. So, when it comes to the banning of the books, though, because a challenge just means that a book was challenged, it doesn't necessarily mean that a book was removed. My book, though, is oftentimes removed, uh, whereas a lot of the other books are not. And so, that's why, like, the case that the Department of Education Civil Rights Division is potentially going to file in Georgia is around where my book solely was removed after eight books were challenged, the other seven went back on the shelf, and my book never was allowed to go back on the shelf. That's why. Florida's don't say gay bill is interesting because in essence, that means that there is a total ban on our book. So it's like the counties don't really, the counties are struggling because they don't know what to do with challenges because it's like, well, if they already can't say gay, and Georgia's book is an LGBTQ book, what what is a challenge process anymore? Why do we even need a school board if we literally, there's nothing we can do because you already have this bill that kind of contradicts what the school board library process is. And so then my book kind of gets trapped in that because then there are certain places where it's kind of just taken off the shelf and nobody knows it because of a statute that has come out or some law that has come out. So it just kind of supersedes the school board process. And so my book now is the second most banned in the country, but that's what we're fighting against.
0: This is all so aggressive. The book bans... Uh, the challenges against all of us who aren't white cis men. And what's interesting is I saw that recently you were actually accosted by a white man from Iowa who wants to ban your book and and had to deal with that. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you handle those kind of confrontations? Yeah.
1: So that was like the first time that I had like a physical face-to-face confrontation with a person who was trying to ban a book. And I already knew that like his interaction with me was odd because it was like, why is this man speaking to me in a bathroom? Um, Like just like randomly sparking up a conversation with me and standing to the stall next to me when there were other urinals available. And so I just was like, already kind of like, something's not right about this. And basically though, he recognized my face uh, because in Iowa, specifically the governor went on all of Iowa's television networks and she read about my sexual assault And then propose a law that is either a misdemeanor or a felony charge and a fine of $2,500 for any educator who gave my book to a team. So it's not like the state of Iowa does not know what I look like or who I am because they have plastered my book all over. And it is literally the catalyst for one of their main laws to ban the books in their state. And so once he kind of started to get loud, I was just, I thought I was just going to fight the man. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to to fight the man. Like it is what it is. Like I'm, I'm from New Jersey. Like, it, you know, and I'm just like, all right, like if I got to fight this man in the airport, I'm just going to fight this man in the airport. Luckily though, there was another guy who could hear exactly what he was yelling at me about and about the book and everything. And so he intervened and he said that he would just walk me to my gate. And then that's when I found out that his uh, wife was like either a librarian or a former librarian. And so he was like, he was texting his wife and was like, hey, like, have you heard of this book? And so she was like, yes, like, that's one of like the books that everybody's fighting for and fighting against in the bands. So a really nice guy. His name was Mike. He walked me to my gate, um, which is good because like you could see like people were getting the bystander effect where it was like you know how like people stand as like well who's going to be the first to jump in and then nobody actually jumps in to help because everybody is like bystanding waiting for somebody to be the first it's just i think that's what it's coming to right like and i think that was why i said something about it i was like because all of these remarks that people make about grooming and pedophilia and this like it has real life consequences for people who really believe in that and play into that who then want to actually in real life cause us harm librarians are getting threatened teachers are getting threatened like it's not just some argument of ideology anymore it really is a safety hazard and a safety issue so much so that i have to have security at times now for book events you know because it's like well if they'll shoot up a church then sure they'll shoot up a book signing so you know it, it really does have real world implications uh, when you become the face of fighting against fascism but yeah i'm not gonna stop fighting so <laughs> like
0: we are glad that you are not going to stop fighting, and I would hope that there are so many more people like Mike out in the world who are trying to support and and do the right thing. On that note, it is Pride Month. Tell us how you are going to celebrate this year with so much uh, so much accomplishment that you've had recently
1: in June. You know, it's Pride Month, so it's just work. It's a lot of work. Like I think. Everybody knows like those 30 days is when we make our our most bank. And then July is when they pull all the rainbows down and we got to go back to grinding. So um, I take every job opportunity uh, for the month of June. So I'll be traveling a lot, um, doing keynotes at Princeton and a couple of other places, so yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm going to my hometown to speak at my public library for the first time. So that'll be cool. Like speaking at the Plainfield Public Library, and the whole city's gonna come. So that is gonna be really, really fun to celebrate Pride Month uh, with my family. Oh, and then at the end of the month, I have a house uh, being named after me. Um, my friend is building a. $20 million complex in Riverside, California to combat homelessness and HIV work. And so uh, there are, I believe, six houses built on the campus and the George M. Johnson house will be unveiled on the last day of Pride Month, as well as Twiggy Pucci Garcon's house. So, yeah, I think that's going to be a great way to end, like having this house unveiled and my mama and end up being there.
0: George M. Johnson Emmy nominated activist writer, thank you so much for sharing your story and for being with us on a word. Happy Pride. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo McAnjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.